The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. Over the past several weeks, we have been in a series on the book of James, unpacking, um, unpacking chapter by chapter what James has to teach us about the connection between faith and our life. Because what James, the brother of Jesus, understands is that there is a deep connection between faith and life. That faith is not simply an intellectual thing. It's not more information. It's not just an educational thing. It's not more things that we learn. But our faith actually is far bigger than that. Faith would be our trust. And so if faith is about trust, faith then also is connected to how we live because when we trust somebody, we follow somebody. When we trust somebody, we listen to somebody. When we trust somebody, we do the things that they say. And so James will make this connection between faith and the way we live. James will talk about, all right, if we believe what we say we believe, then what, how does that impact our words and the things we say? And so if you've been here for this series and you're a Christian, you might find it challenging you in terms of the way you speak, the way you act, the way you live because of what it is that you believe. And if you're new new to the whole Jesus, maybe for you it's not really a challenge to you, but maybe it at least gives you a glimpse into what are some of the motivations in the heart behind what it is that we say we believe is important for us as Christians. Today we're going to continue by going to James chapter Four. And so if you're using the Bibles in front of you, it's on page 1,884. And so we'll continue picking up where James talks about what it looks like for us to live as Christians. Teddy Roosevelt was the 26th president of the United States, and he was known and celebrated as a hero. He was a president who was unafraid to go into battle. He was, in fact, he was always ready for battle, and always ready to fight. He said it himself, better a thousand times, err on the side of over-readiness to fight than to err on the side of tame submission to injury or cold-blooded indifference to the misery of the oppressed. See, what he understood about battle and what he understood as he was leading is that he always had to be ready for the fight. You didn't want to be caught in the battle when the enemy starts closing in and you are not prepared. You're not ready to fight back. You're not ready to protect. And even worse, he would suggest, is if you stood by idly while there were those who were being oppressed and hurt and did nothing when you could have done something. What kind of person are you? And so he was always ready for the fight. He was known for his resolve and his courage. He'd be hit by stray bullets, yet continue on in the battle without ever noticing. He'd be burned by exploding shells and continue to press on in the fight. He wouldn't stop until the battle was won. And when we think about heroes and when we think about the battles that heroes fight, we think of their bravery and courage. We think of the ability to go up against the things that many of us fear, and they do it out of love and sacrifice. And on the other hand, many of us also think of battles and we think of the fear. We think of the anxiety. We think of the worry of being exposed and vulnerable in a fight, the risk of losing everything. And so when James describes in chapter 4 the Christian life and he uses this language of battle, what you might find for yourself is some of each of those feelings. You might find at times this feeling of bravery and courage to go into the fight. 
Yet other times you might find the fear and anxiety, the riskiness of being vulnerable or losing it. And so in James chapter four, he will teach us about the Christian life. And so I'll begin in verse one and we'll spend some time un- unpacking th- this section. It's, he says this, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Now let's pause there for a second. There is a battle within you. Or do you see that in this text? That's what James is calling out here, that there is a battle on the inside. He's pointing out there are some things that you say and do that don't actually begin with what you said and did. There are some things that happen, some things you regret, some hurts that happened that didn't actually start in that place. They started on the inside. James would say that the killing isn't just about the killing. It's about what is in the heart of the person who kills. The gossip isn't just about the gossip. It's about what happens on the inside. The conflict in your marriage, the conflict in your friendship, the conflict isn't just about the other person. It's not just about what was said. It's not just about what was done. It's about something inside. And so James will help connect some dots and point out there are some things going on inside of you, inside of us. He points out some of those. He says there's jealousy and there's coveting, there's selfishness. And he would say that those desires drive decisions that cause hurt and pain and brokenness. That those things inside of us come out of us and cause hurt and pain in the relationships and the places that we see them the most. The fights among you always begin with a fight inside you. The, the, the fights going on in your relationships, in your friendships, in your marriage, those fights are always connected back to some kind of fight inside. And it might be easy for us to think about the fights on the outside because those are the most immediate. Those are the, most, the ones that we most feel. And so we think of the conversation. We think of the hurt. We think of the words. And so we can point to the very specific things. But what James wants to call out is he wants to remind us, don't just focus on what's going on around you while ignoring what's happening inside of you. Don't ignore what's happening on the inside because you're trying to quiet all of these other quarrels and fights happening all around. Because what happens when you try to simply quiet the fights around you and don't deal with what's going on inside you, you will treat the symptoms without ever dealing with the heart. And so James will continue and connect some dots to help us see not only does this happen within us and that not only does it spill out out of us, but there are some things in our life that have influence for how we deal with those hurts and those pains. Verse four, he says, you adulterous people, Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? So James says, don't don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? 
Now, what on earth is James trying to get at here? Now, now what I can tell you what he's not talking about. James is not talking about being friends with people who aren't following God. He is not suggesting that for some reason we shouldn't be friends with people who don't believe in Jesus or don't follow Jesus, that it wouldn't be consistent with what Jesus teaches, what the church all throughout history has taught. That wouldn't be consistent with the mission of the church. And so he's not suggesting we're not friends with those who don't follow Jesus, but he is trying to raise our awareness of the influence that people have in our life when we are going through battles. Because the question isn't, will I or will I not let people influence me? That's not a question. The question is, who do I have closest to me that I allow to have the most influence over me? In the midst of the battle, in the midst of the struggle, who influences me the most? You've probably experienced things that I've experienced. Like like this happens within friendships. Right, you spend enough time with certain people, maybe with your friends, or maybe even in your in um, maybe with a boyfriend or girlfriend or with a spouse. Right, and over time you start to act like that other person. Right? Any of you ever experienced that? Or, or you, like you said something and then somebody called you out and you said that you're you're talking like so and so. Right, and usually it's the person that your spouse is driven crazy by. Right, and they say, why are you saying that? Right. Right, that happens because people have influence over us. I actually noticed this with, with my youngest daughter, Alice. She's two years old. And so recently, she actually started calling me Dada. Now, that might not sound weird to you, but in our house, we've always referred to me as Daddy. Dada has never been my title in the Grunewald home. And so recently, she started calling me Dada. And so obviously, the natural thing to do with a two-year-old is to reason with her. And so I asked her, why you call me Dada. To what she responded, I'm, I'm totally serious. She looks back at me and says, RJ? <laughs> Which terrifies me. Like, what kind of teenager is she going to be when she's two years old and has that smart aleck response about, uh, like, to my question? But the, the, reason, the reason that she responded that way is, is there are some connections that she has friends who call their dad, Dada. And she heard it, and now that has influenced her, and so she's going to try it out. And now because I laughed when she said RJ, now it's a joke. And so she will do it over and over and over again. <laughs> but what's true of my two-year-old is true of teenagers. It's true of young adults. It's true of adults of every age that we are influenced by the people around us. And so who are the people you allow to influence you? Because in the midst of the battles, that will become so critical to how you think, how you deal with those. Who are the people that you allow to influence the way you think about what is good and right and true? Who are the people that you allow to influence the way you talk about your significant other? Who are the people you allow to have influence over the way that you think about work? Who shapes your motivations? Who helps shape the solutions to how you are choosing to deal with your pain? Somebody will have influence. In fact, I would suggest this is one of the reasons why it is so important in our marriages to have people in our life who influence us by fighting for our marriage is people don't get a divorce without somebody who is an influence in their life saying that's the right choice. That decision never happens in isolation. Somebody affirms that decision. And so who are the people that you are allowing influence over you because you will be influenced. And so are those people drawing you closer and closer to Jesus in the battle or are they drawing you away from Jesus? Now James will continue in verse six, which I would suggest is the key verse and the best verse 
in the whole thing, and I want to just read just the first sentence in verse 6. He says, but he gives us more grace. I want to say that one more time because some of you, that's the only reason you're in church today is you need to hear that. But he gives us more grace. No, that's a word we can throw out there. It's a word that's easy to use if you've grown up in the church. And some of you might be new to the church and you're like, or, or, what, do you, what, what, what is this grace saying? It's not like a table prayer. When you say he gives us more grace, it's simply God's favor. God looks at you favorably. And so when he says he gives us more grace, he's saying God will not stop looking at you favorably. No matter what you've said, no matter what you've done, no matter how you feel, no matter what you're up against, God will not, not stop having favor on you. Some of you are fighting a battle and you've let voices influence the way you think about that battle and those voices have led to wrong decisions or those voices have led you to believe some things that aren't simply true about God. And what Jesus wants to say to you is he gives you more grace. Some of you have been fighting some battles and those battles inside of you have spilled out into your relationships. And they have found their way out and now you've said things that you regret. They've said that you've done things that you wish you could undo and you're trying to figure out how can I fix it? How can I go back and undo what happened? And, and it can't be undone. But what Jesus wants to say to you is he gives you more grace. Some of you have been so hurt, not even because of the choices you have made, but because of the choices somebody else made. And the grace of God is not just about what is releasing you from your own sin but it's also the grace of God that will rewrite the stories that you're believing about yourself. That will unravel the lies that you are believing. And so that grace that is enough to set you free from sin is also the grace that will set you free from the lies that you're telling yourself. And so for some of you, you're here with, 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 with a weight of shame and Jesus is saying he gives you more grace. It's not he gives you grace until... It's not he gives you enough to get through a couple things and then you're on your own. It's not he gives you grace until you can finally overcome it yourself. It's not he gives you enough grace to get to the point where you can finally help yourself. It's simply he gives you more grace. And once you use that grace up, he's got more and more and more. It's grace upon grace upon grace. Jesus never runs out of grace. And so you might feel like you're running back to him over and over and you might feel like you're annoying him and you might feel like he's sick of coming there and being there for you, but he keeps handing over the goods. He's not running out. There's always enough grace to overcome the battle you're in. There is no battle that is too great for the grace of God. And so Jesus shows up with more grace and he never stops showing up. Now James continues, and it gets a little bit hard again, but it gets good also. And he says this, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now the reason this sounds a little bit harsh is because it is if you're proud. right? If you are proud, this is bad news because it means God's going to go to work on you. God's going to go into battle and it's going to expose some things. It's going to hurt. It's going to feel a little bit risky. You're going to be in this place where some things are coming out that you don't want to deal with. Right? It's hard when God is opposing the proud, but he does that because you'll never see God's grace when you don't think you need it. 
if you don't realize the broken places inside you, if you don't realize the lies that you're believing, if you don't realize how you've screwed it up, if you don't realize your inability to trust, God is going to work on those places so that he can then say to you, my grace is enough, I've got more. Now this pride can sometimes be an arrogant kind of way of looking at things. It's, I know better than God, and so I know what's right. I know it's good for me. I know it's best for me. And so it can be a position of arrogance, but I know better than God. But sometimes pride is not always an arrogant position. Sometimes it's more, more like despair, which doesn't sound like pride, but sometimes we believe we know better about God, about the kind of people we really are. And so that's a point of brokenness. And so we believe some things are true about us that God would never say are true of us. And so some of you are simply prideful, believing that you know better than God and the choices you make. Some of you believe you know better than God because you know what's going on inside of you. And in each of those, God wants to oppose that and do a work on that. See, sometimes the proud refuse to admit they're wrong. And so we can see that, right? There's a refusal to admit that we're sinful, There's no admission of guilt, no honesty of failures, no willingness for those things to be exposed. God will always oppose that. God will always speak harshly to that. Jesus, over and over again, who are the the people he's harshest with? The religious leaders who fail to admit they're wrong. Jesus will always oppose that, and that will be hard work. Yet he does it so that he can offer more grace. Sometimes the proud refuse to treat themselves the way that God does. And I know this is true of many of you because because I've experienced myself. What what will often happen is you talk to somebody you love or you have a conversation. And so some things come out in that conversation about what you've done wrong. And so some of you, like me, you immediately jump to this place and and you respond, "You're, you're right, I'm a bad husband. I'm a terrible father, I'm a bad wife, I'm a bad mom. You immediately jump past the place of guilt and you jump into this place of shame. You throw out your own dignity and honor and you begin to say some things about yourself that God would never say about you. And here's why why I believe some of you need to hear this. Because some of you are speaking to yourself in ways you would never let another person talk to your kids. Some of you are speaking words to yourself that if another person said that to one of your closest friends, you would lose it on them. Some of you need to stop listening to yourself and you need to start listening to Jesus because Jesus would never treat you the way that you're treating yourself. And that's a place of pride and when Jesus goes to work on that, that's gonna be hard. That's gonna pull out some stuff in you that you didn't even know was there, but he will do that. Why? Because when he gives you his grace and when he begins to rewrite those stories of shame with his blood, it will begin to change the way you see yourself. Now, sometimes the proud refuse to trust God with the things they can't control. And so when we, when we believe that we know better than God, sometimes we think our plans are better. We think we've got it more figured out. We know better for us, for our family, for our life. And so we try to control things that are simply not in our control. And so what happens in that moment is the proud will say, well, I trust you, just not with these things. And that lack of trust leads 
to fear. And it robs us of the joy that God has for us. Let me give you an example, uh, and, and I'm not a car guy, but so bear with me um, if any of you actually know about cars. But, but it's kind of like the, the person who loves cars, and so they have this incredible car, yet they keep it locked in their garage. No, the car is running, right? So it's not like they get their joy out of fixing the car. No, it's a, it's a, perfect, it's a, a car in perfect condition if they leave it locked in their garage because if they took the car out of their garage, what if they hit a pothole on the highway? I mean, Michigan roads are bad, and so why would I risk hitting a pothole, ruining my perfectly incredible car? It never brought it out of the garage, because what if, what if I parked it in the parking lot and some kid dinged the door on the car? Like, what, what would happen? What could happen to this car? And so they never actually get to experience the joy of riding in the car. They never get to feel the rumble of the engine as they start the car. They never get to feel the joy of racing down the country highway with the wind blowing through their hair. They never get to experience bringing their grandkid for a ride in the car because they're too worried of what could happen. Some of us do that with the good things that God gives us. We are so in fear of what could happen to our kids to our job, to our friends, that we are robbed from the joy of actually being present. God will oppose that. God will work that out. And it hurts, but he does it so that the grace that he has gives more trust and brings more joy than you could even imagine. See, whatever it is that you battle against, whether that's a battle because you are having a hard time admitting your own sin, or if that's a battle because of some lies that you're believing about yourself, or a battle because you're having a hard time trusting, God will work on that, and he reminds you that he's always got more grace. And so James says, God gives grace to the humble, that God shows his favor to the humble, because when you come to terms with the battle you're losing, you'll begin to rely on God's grace to fight the battle. Because when you realize what you can't do in the battle, you rely on what God can do. And so James then continues in verse seven with what I would suggest is a different kind of plan for the battle. He then gives us some insight in how we live that is a whole different approach to how many of us would choose to fight. He says in verse seven, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you James says, as you go into battle, submit and watch Satan flee. Now, that's not how most of us respond to the battles. Because what we see is we get to the battlefield and we see Satan in the middle of the field and he's standing there like, come at me, bro. Right? And then what we do is we say, all right, I'm going for it. I'm going into the battle. And so we get ready and we book it straight out to go to battle. And the moment we get 
to the enemy, he hits us with a right hook and we're down on the ground right away. And so he stands over us, taunting us, reminding us of all our failures, telling us lies about ourselves, pointing out all, of the th- all the ways the enemy is closing in. And so what James wants to say is, I want you to change the way you're fighting this battle. I want you to stop looking at the enemy and start looking at the cross. I want you to stop charging in the battle and get on your knees. Some of you need to stop looking at the enemy and start looking at Jesus. Some of you need to stop listening to the taunts of the enemy and start listening to the words of Jesus because James says, submit to Jesus and the enemy books it. The enemy can't stand when he knows you're following Jesus into the battle. He knows he can't win that fight. He's read the end of the story. And so James says, submit and watch the enemy flee. Follow God's lead into the battle and Satan will run. Because he might be good at winning the battle against you, but he can't win the battle against Jesus. And then James says, come near. Come near and watch Jesus come near to you. Which sometimes is a hard thing to believe. Because I think for many of us, the way we think about Jesus is that he's standing here and he says, all right, come near. And then, and then we show up to Jesus and we're like, and, and Jesus is like, whoa, 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 I didn't see that coming. Like, well, I didn't know about those things going on in there. Like, I knew about, like, I knew that you, like, you, you swore in the car when that person cut you off. Like, I knew about that, but, like, there's some weird stuff in there. Like that, that, but that's not the way that Jesus responds. Jesus says, all right, come to me, come to me. And before you even get to him, he starts coming to you. Jesus is not surprised by any of your insecurities. He's not surprised by your sin. He's not surprised by the wounds. He's not surprised by any of it. In fact, as you come near to Jesus, he comes near to you. He gets into the mess. He gets into the fight. And he wraps his arms of grace around you. And then James tells us that he will lift us up. Because when you're at the bottom, Jesus will lift you up. When you hit those low places, Jesus meets you in those places. And some of you have been fighting this battle so long that you feel like you have nothing left. Some of you feel like you've been left with no capacity to get yourself back up, with no ability to stand up. And Jesus says, I've got this. Jesus isn't waiting for you to fix it. He's meeting you at the bottom. He brings life where there's death. He brings peace where there's anxiety. He brings hope where there is despair. He brings joy where there's sorrow. And so the moment you hit the bottom, when the moment you're on the floor, he's not looking down on you. He gets on the ground with you. And so he looks you in the eye when nobody else would and he grabs you by the hand and he lifts you up. Some of you have been fighting a battle within and you feel like you're losing. Some of you have been fighting a battle within and you don't know your way out. You feel surrounded. You feel alone. You feel lost. And for some of you, those battles are not only inside you, but now they're around you. 
Some of you, they've spilled out into relationships. Some of you, you look around and you feel like there's battles happening all around you. In every direction you look, you see the attacks of the enemy. And so you are overwhelmed and you don't know your way forward. Some of you find yourself even so distracted by what you need to do in this fight that you have, have lost, the, lost the voice of God and you ha- haven't been able to hear him say, but he gives you more grace. And what Jesus wants to do is he wants to show up in the midst of that battle and remind you that he's always got more grace, that he's not going anywhere. He's got you. A few years ago, there was a story in the Washington Post about two elderly men who came out of the woods in 2005. They came out of the woods in the island of Mandau in the Philippines. They were in their 80s and they were Japanese soldiers. In 1941, Japan invaded the Philippine Islands hours after attacking Pearl Harbor. And then in 1945, the Japanese surrendered with hundreds of thousands of soldiers deployed all around the Pacific. And in 1945, getting the word out to hundreds of thousands of soldiers that the fighting had stopped was difficult. And so many soldiers were still in forests and on various islands who thought there was still a war. And so in 2005, 60 years after fighting had stopped, two men in their 80s came out of hiding terrified in fear of being tried for desertion or being killed by the enemy. There are similar accounts of of the same thing happening in the 70s. In the 70s, one soldier refused to come out of hiding until his old commander was flown in to tell him that the war was over. Two other soldiers came out of hiding with the gun still in their hand, all of which missed their entire lives believing there was still a battle, not ever knowing that the war was over. Some of you are living like you are in a battle. Some of you are missing out on everything because you are living and the gun is still in your hand. Some of you feel like you are in the force and that you are surrounded by the enemy. And you can't stop replaying the things that you regret. You can't stop replaying the things that you said. And so you're hiding and you're ready to fight back. Some of you keep hearing the lies of the enemy in your head that are making you believe that there is still a fight going on. Some of you can't put down the gun because you don't trust that God is actually with you in the forest. what Jesus does is he meets you in that place and he says, put the gun down. And so he meets you in that place. He takes the weapons out of your hands. He wraps you in his arms. He says, you may feel like the enemy has surrounded you, but I surround you with more grace than anything that could come against you. And so he picks you up and he reminds you that you may feel like you're losing this battle, but he says, I have already won the war. 
Jesus, we thank you that you fight for us. That in the midst of our own battles that you show up. That you show up with grace, forgiveness. That when we can't fight, when we can't go on, you rescue us. We thank you for your body and your blood that you give to us that is greater than any enemy we might go up against. We thank you for your promise that our sins are truly forgiven. Pray this in your name.